This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. This edition of the podcast is a showcase for the educational work that LA Opera and its partners do here in the Los Angeles community and how LA Opera is able to introduce so many young people to the world of opera. It is so much easier than you think it's going to be because they don't know that they're supposed to be scared of it. And I'll let our three guests introduce themselves. Eric Greenberg, Director of Education and Visitor Engagement for the Autry Museum of the American West. Eli Villanueva, Resident Stage Director for LA Opera's Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Stacy Brightman. I'm Vice President for Education and Community Engagement here at LA Opera. So we're talking about uh, young audiences for opera. We're talking about bringing young people to um, the the fascinating world of opera. How does LA Opera work um, within the company and also with partner organizations to sort of um, make that process happen? Well, we're so lucky. We've got with our with our boss Placido Domingo, with James Conlin, our leadership at the board. I would say a completely deep, authentic, passionate, fierce uh, commitment to sharing a love and knowledge of opera with our entire community. And that really manifests in many, many ways, but certainly in the education and community engagement department, where we believe that opera, music, drama, beauty, truth, emotion is a basic human right. And so that has become about 25 different programs that we offer in any given year, which are meant to go cradle to grave, you know, working with different communities uh, and, and making opera accessible and giving people opportunities to engage with it out in the community, outside of our, our beautiful home here at the Dorothy Chandler, but also in our home here at the Chandler. And uh, particularly, for instance, every summer, we do a program that's opera camp. <laughs> I wish I, I'd like to go to opera camp as an adult, but uh, I, I fake it by being able to go and hang out with, uh, gosh, it'll probably be about 75, 80 kids from all over Los Angeles County who are going to spend three weeks with us, the most exhausting three weeks of their lives. It's, it's kind of opera boot camp, really. And, uh, and Don't they, call it that, though. That's <laughs> <what you're talking. laughs> um, they will, no push-ups involved. Exactly. Well, you never know. Um, <laughs> they will learn opera by doing opera. But, uh, and you asked about partnership. And opera, of course, is a completely collaborative art form. And, and so it's one of the great joys has been to work with extraordinary experts like Eric and his team at the Autry, um, really to show that, uh, again, it kind of takes a village, if, it, if you will, to put on an opera or to explore these stories. And, and so it's kind of fun because we've really gotten into a tremendous arc now of commissioning operas together with our partners and and with wonderful other community organizations with expertise to create stories of the West and stories that are very relevant to the students. Mm -hmm. um, Eric, the Autry Museum, why is a museum getting involved with, with opera? What is it about um, the, the draw of this art form for, for your organization? Well, it doesn't hurt that I'm a former opera singer, but, but that's, not, <laughs> that's not the major focus. Um, prior to even my tenure, uh, the education department of the Autry and the Education Department of the Opera had worked together um, what 
Autry brought to that early relationship was expertise, familiarity with themes. The the um, the first partnership was on the Prospector, um, which is based on La Fachona del West. The more recent piece uh, was called The White Bird of Poston, which is this looks at Japanese internment and uh, the Native American reservation experience. And so it brought uh, a, a level of expertise to, to that work consultation. But the truth is, a few years ago, I started a program called Autry Classroom Curators, which was an attempt to get students to turn their research into cultural productions. So museum exhibits, poetry readings, a range of things. And I had approached Stacy around that time and said, I would like to work on this at some point. We hadn't quite figured out the way to do it, but over the past couple of years, we actually figured out uh, exactly how to do it. And so what it does from my perspective is it convinces people that the study of the past need not result in a multiple choice exam, five paragraph essay, all those things that so many people hate about history class, but instead leads to vibrant cultural projects that uh, people can see and learn from. So that that's that's what drove me, at least. Mm-hmm. And I would think, Eli, as um, someone who writes music mm-hmm. um, and someone who explores these kinds of themes, like it's not difficult to find themes that are just out there in the world and in our history um, that relate then to both existing work and also just themes that would make a great opera. I find it uh, kind of fun to actually find, look for ways in which themes from traditional operas that we bring to introduce kids to what would be more standard repertoire in the main stage and uh, tunes that they might uh, be attracted to and bring these themes together in a way so that even though they don't know how to read music, they can actually participate, they can follow along, they can have uh, fun and be affected by that. And it, it is a, a fun challenge to, to bring all of these tunes and all, all of these themes, and musical themes at least, together in, in this respect. Mm-hmm. This question's for whoever wants it. The world of opera, how do you introduce a young person to this world? So you've got someone who has never heard an opera, who doesn't know who Verdi is, who hasn't heard of Wagner. They, you know, maybe they know there's costumes and it's a lot of loud singing. How do you take a young person and show them something that maybe something that they've never thought they might be interested in and totally like blow them away with it. Well, I should divulge this secret, but (laughs) trade secret, trade secret, (laughs) right? Here we go. Warning. It is so much easier than you think it's going to be because they don't know that they're supposed to be scared of it. The idea of a story told with music and, and maybe it's a wacky story told with music makes complete sense, especially the younger uh, students, uh, the younger kids that we get to work with. They respond to it. They love it. It's an opportunity to play, the playfulness of it. Uh, it's all very, very natural. I think it's when we get older uh, that somehow or another the word opera becomes the, you know, the stereotype or the becomes imbued with terrifying connotations. But, uh, and that's wrong. That's, that's just a, it's a myth. 
and God knows we love myths and opera. <laughs> um, but and in fact, that's a lot of what we're talking about. We talk a lot about myths with the kids, and we talk about heavy subjects with the kids too. I think they love also that this is not. I, I'll, I'll tell you, for instance, with opera camp, what we do with them is they come in. Some of the kids, this is going to be the first time that they've stepped on a stage. And what we say to each of these young persons coming in is, wherever you are on that spectrum, we are going to challenge you. We're going to stretch you in terms of your artistry, in terms of your performance, your skills, your commitment to the art. That's the first promise. The second really goes even deeper in terms of a moral obligation involved with the art. And that is that when you have the power of opera or the power of storytelling, it's quite the responsibility. And you will probably never be completely worthy of that challenge or that responsibility, but you must do everything in your power. So that's, again, another way that we, it's it's incredibly important that we get to work with folks like the Autry, with the Japanese American National Museum. Another great partner has been the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust recently with uh, another partner called Facing History, Facing Ourselves. All of these folks help us work with the students and to share with them the deeper stories and the themes of what is in the opera that they're doing. And we work them so hard and they love it. They love it. Kids love, you know, a challenge. Um, so that's that's what's going on. Yeah. Show them Aida. Uh, my, my earliest memory of opera is seeing... Aida at the Met, and is it the second act where they enter with the elephants and the camels? Mm-hmm. And the, the, that was sold. it. You were that done. Was it. You were done. It, it, it was only later that I discovered that not every opera had elephants oh, and camels, man. and that was a little oh. disappointing. But sorry about that. There, the, you know, Stacy talked earlier about. I mean, there's, there's just a level of grandeur that's that's very appealing uh, visually and musically, mm-hmm. and so show them Aida that you probably have them for life. Yeah. Although they could use an elephant in that apartment well, you know, in Bohem. There's always a rework. There's always the, you know, yeah, exactly. Stacy said something that, that was really good, and, and that is that what we like to do with LA Opera, especially with Opera Camp, or if we go into the elementary schools or the high schools and we're introducing opera, we we really are showing them a story first, even even – when it's first contact, we don't necessarily share the music just yet. We share the story, and we try to, in that period of time, touch certain levels that they can connect to. Then we start to introduce the music, and, and we show why the music sounds this way. And and in this kind of connection, they're, they're beginning to understand what... A major chord will do in the story what a minor chord will do as far as one is feeling and they they have a new understanding that they start to respect and they start to have fun with and they really start to connect it's it's really kind of mind-blowing how how they get involved by the end of a of a research or right well and to touch a little on something that you said too um eric uh the the students really become stakeholders in the story it is their story Mm -hmm. and we could certainly talk a lot about the birth of empathy during this this process that you can through your imagination and your skills your your artistic skills 
really start to empathize and identify with a story of the California gold rush or a story of the Japanese-American internment where the internment camp was on a Native American reservation, you know, in essence, a concentration camp with on a concentration camp. Um, some of this work actually was really, really inspired by our very first year of doing opera camp, which was a, a really beautiful piece um, called Brundabar. Not as many people are as familiar with Brundabar as I would wish, but it's this astonishing, beautiful children's opera that was written just before uh, World War II broke out by uh, a Jewish composer, Hans Krasse. And then the composer and so many artists were sent to the Teretzin concentration camp, and this opera, this children's opera, was smuggled in and performed 55 times Mm -hmm. in the camp as a form of spiritual resistance. And that really is, I think, what inspired us to commission and to want to work with the Autry and Japanese American National Museum on the White Bird of Poston. How can you approach the most serious subject, the most tragic subject, and still find the place of uplift from it? So, And, and that's... Uh, Poston is particularly good at that yeah. because you can tell the story of Japanese internment in any number of ways. But Poston tells the story of Japanese internment through the eyes of a teenager. So um, maybe one can't understand what it's like to be put into a concentration camp. I know that I can't. Uh, But you can certainly understand what it's like to have your hopes and dreams frustrated because of the decisions of adults. And what I find very appealing about Poston, especially when we see performances with children because I've seen it workshopped with just professional singers but when you bring the students in either through opera camp or through the in-school performances um, there's just something that resonates there's something that makes sense to kids and I think it helps the the opera make even more sense for adults too it's it's really a very it was whoever wrote that I, I <laughs> who, who wrote Poston? Was that you? Someone in this room. <laughs> no, I, I really didn't know, but it, it was really very clever. It's really very smart. It's really a very smart piece. Yeah. I, I have to say that it was the librettist, Leslie Stevens, who really did a lot of research, really reached out to a lot of, uh, of individuals and, and found stories and found connections and found those relationships and, and really... Uh, did the work that made it so easy for me to to write the music and and i'm I'm glad that a lot of people are are touched by the music are touched by the relationships it's a very satisfying piece even years after I've written it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you write do you how much do you consider your audience um, and the age of your audience um, so we've we've mentioned a couple of children's operas in this conversation. How much of that is goes into how you construct specifically the musical portion of an opera? I would have to say that my first consideration is the chorus and the the kids or the the volunteers who would be in the the piece itself. I have to make sure that they are attracted to the story, that they are attracted to the music, and they are able to sing the music. If it works for them, I think that the audiences would gain an appreciation to the piece regardless of 
of who they are, whether they're young or whether they're the parents of these people. It, it, it will work if it works for these volunteers who are in, in the chorus. So that was my first consideration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric, you said something very interesting a second ago that got me thinking about kind of the the young teenage activists that we've seen in the news recently where it's young people being frustrated by the actions of adults or the inaction of adults depending on what the what the issue is and i'm i'm wondering among us here at this table you know it sounds like it feels like you are all really in in tune and are open and wanting to listen to what young people have to say to you, rather than a lot of education initiatives that are like, okay, we're going to teach this thing to you, and we're going to impart this onto you, and we are going to you know, cover you with this knowledge so that you will be better for it. Can you talk um, a little bit about sort of how you listen and take and learn, not take, but <laughs> you know, grow and learn from the young people that you work with? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, first, let me just frame it a little bit. With I think that we absolutely can and must listen to the voices of young people. It's just essential. It is also our responsibility to educate them so that they have an educated opinion about the things they express themselves <laughs> about. But once that happens, there once that part happens, which is the reason that Stacy and I started partnering in the ways that we've been doing over the past few years. Allowing them to express themselves is really, um, really critical because most of the work we're doing together involves working with teenagers, largely working with high school kids, performing operas. There is a particular obnoxiousness to the way teenagers express themselves, which is a good thing. There are no filters or there are fewer filters. Um, they are willing to say things with, that we may go, oh, we, we don't talk that way, but, but they do. <laughs> And so that's really, really valuable to hear that unfiltered sense of of people who perhaps haven't been beaten down in the way being an adult can do that. But um, the other thing that's really interesting, and this is a, a project that we're currently working on where a group of students from my program did the research that is leading to the creation of a new opera that we're working on right now called The Wreck of the Miranda, is the stories that they were able to find. We, we set out, we asked a group of students from the Zoo Magnet High School in Griffith Park to find stories of environmental justice. And the number of things that they found, the facility they have in doing um, digital research, because they were, they're digital natives, was just extraordinary. Things I, I had never heard about. And it's really, really terrific and important for us to sort of take those findings seriously. And in essence, the, the, the plot line of the Wreck of the Miranda is just that, a young a group of students or a young woman, actually, who first discovers there is this environmental problem, tells the town no one will listen. And it's not until uh, she and her classmates demand that they be heard that people realize the problem and begin to solve it. Uh, so both the way they express themselves, but also their facility for looking at the world, I think, is, is really, really important. Mm. Yeah, something you see consistently in these commissions, these collaborations, is about empowering the young person, that they are the heroes and the heroines of these operas. So in The White Bird of Poston, you have two teenagers who are the heroes of the piece. The Wreck of the Miranda, two teenage girls who are very, very different 
um, who become the the agents of change uh, for this piece, that they have power. And again, responsibility that goes with that. And how are you going to use this opportunity? And I, I mean, that's, I love that, that theme. So we're going to just keep beating that theme and, 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 and singing that song all the time. And of course, it comes in very nicely when you think about the activism, too, that's built into each of these, uh, these pieces, where one of the greatest tools for activism and to bring others to your cause is music, right? So, you know, we could do these shows as plays if we were a different kind of organization, or if you really want to move somebody and, and, and affect change, you know, bring the song in as well, you know, Mm -hmm. that way you, you know, you short, go right past the brain straight into the heart of the story as well. It's funny. I mean, not to get too crazy out there, but one of the things I, I sort of think about is um, every once in a while when we, when we embark on a new opera camp or we embark on a project like this together with the Autry, I, I actually sometimes very much think about like Dr. King's and the, and the rules, uh, the steps for nonviolent action. You know, making art is a, a, is a tremendous form of nonviolent action. And, you know, all those steps you have to take of, you know, doing your research, preparing yourself, talking, you know, confronting the issue and all of those things you have to do before you're worthy to take the action. And what a gift it is to be able to have the power of music and story mm-hmm. at your disposal. Mm-hmm. We have an opera camp coming up mm-hmm. and we've talked a little bit about elements of it, but I'm I'm curious, what is what does it look like on day one when uh, when the young people uh, come in for the first day of opera camp. What uh, what's the experience like? Well, they they start very early in the morning uh, at eight o'clock with an orientation. So they they need to understand that for the next three weeks it's going to be extremely intense, and we expect them to do a lot of work. Um, not only during the day, but also when they get home, they'll have homework. So we want to get them oriented to what to expect. Then we start right away with movement, um, and that's where we do bring in the push-ups. Um, <laughs> oh, I was, I was hoping there were no push-ups. You were, you were serious. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, we do bring in for conditioning purposes because we, we do expect them to move. We expect them uh, to be uh, aerobically uh, ready to sing and jump and dance and and hit their marks. So we, we do need to physically condition them. So they we have movement in the morning first thing and getting them deep in their legs in plie. <laughs> and, and then from there we start with a vocal warm-up and we start to coordinate the body with the voice. And from there we will move on to music rehearsal and we spend, actually the, in the first day we spend most of the rest of the day, except for a few uh, other uh, lectures or or classes in which we start to study human relations, um, the history of the pieces. Um, again, where we would bring in some experts, people like facing history, facing ourselves, um, and 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 then somewhere along the way too, they actually make field trips. They're going to be going to the Autry. They're going to be going to the Japanese American National Museum. And sprinkled through, I will also say I, I'm so grateful. We, we talked about the youth power of this. Um, one of the lovely things we do, or we, we're, that we're able to do, I should say, 
is uh, there are different elders in our community. So, for instance, we have some beautiful elders who come in and talk and work with the students who were themselves interned uh, at Poston when they were the age of the kids in mm. the opera camp. Mm. And they share their stories and their that the, the truth of that experience. And, boy, then the kids are really, you know, they feel like they've been given handed literally that that story to tell and to and to tell it as well as they can and to perform it as well so then you know that those kind of experiences are 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 really woven through opera camp and and then pretty quickly you're up they're up on their feet um and they're staging by the end of the afternoon we do have staging rehearsals and on day one Day one, nice. yes, and uh, yeah, and we we start to really work them so that they what they've been rehearsing already in the mornings uh, we already start to put on its feet, mm. and and those are the sections that we need to drill because they are either choreographed or they are potentially dangerous for a child. And what I mean by that is if we have... Wait, hold on. (laughs) What I mean by that is that there are times when there's a big riot within this uh, piece and the riot has to be controlled. We do that right from the very beginning so that they understand there is a technique to show this type of energy and this type of ferocity. Mm -hmm. And so we start to show them so that they understand that at all times we are always in control. So (laughs) it's not dangerous, but it's supposed to look that way. And if we have, you know, if it is a child that could be potentially out of control. We, we could step on somebody's foot and somebody could cry. And we don't want criers. So. <laughs> I would add that the L.A. Opera puts us through just as intense a process for opera camp. Um, so the L.A. Opera kids are coming next week. Is that when it's mm-hmm. happening? Something yeah, like that. Yeah. And... They want to visit the museum over a 90-minute period of time. They want to visit our galleries and have some folks come in and help put um, some of what they're doing into historical context. And we did it. We did it because um, Stacy and her team are um, really committed and passionate. And when they ask for these things, they just make sense until you then hang up the phone, look back, and say, oh, my God, what have I... What have I committed myself to in the next few weeks? Um, but so the entire process, even the host for a field trip, yeah. um, goes through a really, really intense experience <laughs> yeah. during opera camp. You know, you also have um, something that we woven through. I keep talking about this kind of this experience. Also, the Autry has helped us out because it's very important to show sort of the diversity of artists in opera and the different skills and talents that we need to to make this happen, you know, that everybody has something that they must contribute. And I'm really grateful to um, some of the artists, actually, at um, Native Voices, mm-hmm. which is the uh, theater company, of course, um, housed at the Autry. We've had, uh, working with us for the last several years, Kalani Capo, and, and now we have um, Rainy Fields, uh, a tremendous Native American artist who's going to be part of our team and, and working with the students. And again, you know, trying to show, I mean, we're dealing with some different cultures, you know, that, and, and how do we approach it with the utmost respect? Mm-hmm. And 
one of the one of the many ways that the Autry helps us, mm-hmm. uh, and the generosity of their artists. We also, funny enough, talk about the generosity of people, uh, the campers. Uh, we, we ask as much of ourselves. I hope that <laughs> I hope that that's what I want to say. It's pretty funny how we go knocking around at all the different uh, <laughs> opera offices and say, "Hey, um, I'm sure you want to give a tour, you know, or in fact, I think you want to give four tours." <laughs> and hey, I think you want to give a demonstration of stage management. And hey, I think you want to give a prop demonstration. And so, it's it's very joyful to see how many people we uh, here at the opera family um, are also get pulled into uh, into opera camp really no person is safe from opera camp <laughs> but the children are safe the children are safe the children are very safe yes to hit a theme sure from day one that they are safe when uh, young people come through the opera camp, when they have survived the riot scenes <laughs> and when they have done their calisthenics exactly. and uh, their, their vocal performances and yeah. uh, all elements of this, what, um, what do you hear back from them after the process is, is finished? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, they have bonded. Um, and... They have become, whether you want to call it a tribe or whether you want to call it a family, uh, they have become deeply a community. You know, uh, I think the best term, the best definition I've ever heard of, uh, well, entertainment reinforces what you already know. Art extends you. It expands your horizons. And then I love the idea of a community as a group of people who make something together. So whether we're making... A temple together, whether we're making a church together, whether we're making bread together, if we make a show together, uh, you're, you're in essence stuck with me for life. <laughs> and um, and so they are, they really kind of hold on to each other. But boy, you know, nobody gets there alone. We only cross the finish line together, right? And so um, they have very much bonded. And so they, they, then they're always, what I hear from them afterwards is, Okay, well, what's next? What's, um, when do we see each other again? A lot of them have become, well, it's actually been a, again, I don't want to say a gateway drug for opera, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to say that. But it's funny because this experience, this intense experience of these weeks together making an opera has actually led to the creation of several other programs. So, for instance, we have a whole teenage ambassadors program well, that was because these opera camp kids couldn't get enough of each other and, and wanted to be more involved and to volunteer and to keep coming back. And so they're, they're kind of a, a new leadership group for us. The Cathedral Project, which is another big community opera that we do every year, I say more than half of the opera camp kids end up doing that project with us as well. Mm. So mm. they can't get enough of each other. <laughs> I can tell you what I hear from the students that – that we work with um, to try and get students to think about history as a as something that we can share with the world, they like it. I mean, and, and I'm not just saying that anecdotally. We have survey material that shows that a majority of students who learn with us in that way prefer it. And I know there's going to be skeptical people who say, well, of course they love it. They don't have to take tests. And, but, but that's not what's going on here. The learning is real. The learning matters because we have built capstones. We've built assessments in seeing how students understand um, what they've accomplished. One way was 
just watching every single student um, that participated in pitching ideas for the wreck of the Miranda to stand up in a group of three in front of the librettist and the composer and and tell this research that they learned and to do so with authority not reading from cards is just really extraordinary we see the learning um, we see how it works and what I hear back from students uh, is that this is something that they really enjoy and, um, and wish they had more of. Eric Greenberg is the Director of Education and Visitor Engagement for the Autry Museum of the American West. Eli Villanueva is the Resident Stage Director for LA Opera's Education and Community Engagement. And Stacy Brightman is LA Opera's Vice President for Education and Community Engagement. For more information on the programs for young people at LA Opera, click on the Community tab at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.